Listener Production. You're listening to episode 88 of the Howie Games, part B, featuring Kurt Fernley. Enjoy. To put it into context of Athens, you're pushing hard, um, you're, you're going through your mental and physical battles, you're looking for your first um, Olympic gold medal in a marathon, and then you hit a what I would call a rather significant technical hitch. <laughs> That's what I would call it. Look, I... I remember you only remember parts of that race because you're you're trying to really switch into that instinct of repetition, do the thing. Often they're trying to tell yourself to calm down, just do the thing that you've done. And, and Dorsey had worked with me a lot. Everything was at high intensity. My everything we did was focused around heart rate in the lead up to Athens. That was probably the thing that made a biggest difference for us during that period of time was that we changed the way that wheelchair racing was trained, um, that Dorsey's an able-bodied guy, he's never pushed a chair, but he would get on a bike next to me and train with me in every session. He would put my heart rate on his bike. He would be telling me to keep going in every single session. He'd be... He, he, he remember, I remember sitting down with him and him telling me that this 12 months is about getting rid of any voice of doubt that you have and replacing it with just certainty. And he would be screaming at me and telling me to keep going. And in that race at 32 kilometres, we had just crested a 22-kilometre hill. It's about 34 degrees outside. I've led the race for about 20k for the entirety of the hill. I didn't know how far I was in front, a metre in front or a kilometre in front. I never looked behind. And then I looked down, oh, it took another five kilometres of just trying to keep the momentum of the chair going forward because you you busted up, uh, but you're backing yourself that everybody's busted worse than you are. And then I look down and I see my, or I hear my rear left tyre blow and... <laughs> You just think, shit. But you, you give yourself that moment, and you and you you give yourself that moment, and you just yell for a bit. But then you just push through it. Like there's no alternative. You, you know, if you stop, if you stop and change a tire, or it's you know, in best of days, I can change a tire in four and a half minutes. The race is done. You know, you know so just forget it. Push through it, and get there it's 10 minutes it might add another four minutes max onto the 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 top if you just keep pushing through it well Kurt Fernley despite a flat tire over the last five kilometers is going to take his second gold medal here he won the 5,000 he was fourth in both the 1500 meters and the 800 and that's a fantastic effort from Kurt Fernley um it, it was it was just um it was one of those moments that it's a shit of a thing to go through. Boy, I'm glad I got through it. Mm. I'm glad that I was given the opportunity to nail that because it was that last little bit that you had already nailed the race, but it's like that last little hurdle that you didn't trip on, you know. You, you kept it together and... You did it, and um, and what's it like to be the best? Yeah, it's pretty special. It's um, it's like a there's an additional part of you that's created that you'll never doubt. You'll never doubt your 
on your day, you know, there's no questioning, you know that you can be the absolute best in the world at your chosen craft. Like there's no, there's no wishy-washy, there's just certainty there and Hmm. you don't take that away. Brilliant descriptions you're giving. Um, I want to skip to your last race at the Commonwealth Games. You, You went, you won in Athens, you won again in Beijing. Fernley's arms must be burning as he surges down the back straight underneath the cauldron. If he gets around the bend, I think he'll get the gold medal. Fernley of Australia with so much heartbreak in the meet. He's stunning the grimace now. I don't think that Hakanato Sasahar is going to get him. Fernley pushing for gold. He will get the gold. Fernley defends his marathon title ahead of Sasahara with Van Dyke in third. The feeling for Kurt Fernley and those strong shoulders. A weight, a massive weight must be lifted. You started dominating around the world. The New York Marathon, which I'm sure is very special to you, became yours. You had crashes, you still went on and won. It looks to me as though Al Fernley just had a momentary lapse of concentration right there. You saw him go down, but he's an amazing athlete. He did not even let this bother him. He jostled himself back up, which is just unbelievable, and did not miss a beat. By two minutes, he sets the ING New York City Marathon record. Not only that, Al, but let's go ahead and throw this in the mix, too. He's the first man in a wheelchair, the first person in a wheelchair to eclipse one hour and 30 minutes. That's a milestone. But you get to your last event in your home country, Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast. You win that event and you were... It was great that Paddy Welsh was there because... For me, he's as good as it gets in the industry that I work in, in getting that post-race emotion, whether it's Sally, whether it's you. Paddy's the guru, whether he's whispering Paddy Welsh out on the fairways that he's done in golf or... That is the most stunning... Don't worry about performance. We'll get to your performance, mate, but that is the most stunning post-match interview, for want of a better term, I think I've ever heard. The fact you're able to gather yourself and your wife was there and your young bloke was there and you spoke with such clarity and emotion, I don't know how you did that. Athletes are afforded a fairy tale finish. You've just given yourself one. Yeah, mate. Oh. And I was thinking that the whole way around. I said, no one, no one deserves nothing. You've got to get out there and you've got to work for it. And then I got a little break at 4K and I just thought, like I was saying earlier in the week, I've received so much from the organising committee, from from everyone, from the grassroots up, everyone from Carcourt to Newcastle, the streets of the Gold Coast here, and all you can do is really try and give back a little. And that was an hour and 30 of giving back. That hurt, mate. I got, I got nothing else. I saw your face as you were crossing the line. You were spent. Oh, I just checked the heart rate. I had an average of 194, including a minute before the start. So I was working hard, mate, and I can see my little man and Sheridan just coming over. So do you mind if I just go give him yeah, a quick hug, mate? Go and give him a big hug. You're in a moment. You're in a moment that you're exhausted, but it's also one of the best moments of your life. And I think Paddy's amazing as well because you know that he cares, you know what I mean? Like he he all of a sudden become part of my family. Like there wasn't a there wasn't wasn't a barrier there. There was just I'm sitting down talking to a mate and he's invited my family into this conversation. So we've just become family. 
And I think that I also, like I'd been around for 25 years and I knew that this was the last time, the last time that I do this. So you're also taking a breath and you're like, just say something that's worth worth saying, you know what I mean? And I've got my young fella on my lap and <laughs> you're looking again, you're looking at the people that you love more than anything. You're, you've just experienced one of the peaks of, in the very last time you're going to experience it, that you just want to be, you just want to be real. And and I watched that again. You you gene me up that I'm, I've got my own picture. I did watch that again because I went this to morning, gig. this morning just to start <laughs> on repeat. Day off. I wake my swell alarm clock. I didn't see how many downloads I had on YouTube. I didn't know half of them were yours. <laughs> I did. I watched it again. <laughs> I watched it again when I did a gig and they played it and it's like yeah. the world fell out from underneath me. And it was it was uh it was uh just it was very real, very raw and um I would encourage every athlete to do it. For you is this is the reward, isn't it? Oh mate. This is everything. This is done. This is just Oh, eight years ago, I sat down and I said, this was my last race and never wavered from knowing it was my last race through the last night lying in bed, knowing it was the last time in the green and gold. And, mate, when you're in these colours, you've got to be fierce. And today I had a, as close to fierce as I'll ever get. Because, one, it's hard because sometimes your disappointment can put people off. But I would say you've got to do it in a bit of a kind way. So you may be devastated, but you've also got to you've got to recognise that there is such a privilege that you're getting given this moment that you've got to also put it in perspective that can be heard at home, um, and also even those moments that you're sitting there speaking into a camera or talking to a to a journal who you may not have met, you've got a responsibility to bring them in as well because then you would just feel so much more comfortable to, to speak about the things that's, that are worth talking about. And um, I did get better at that throughout the 20 years and I think that yarn, that yarn was just very real um, and it's very, very, was very, very hard to watch because you're also a bit vulnerable and that's never really something that you're, you're comfortable about. But I've had so many people speak to me about that, that it really, I think it did hit a, hit a mark. If I can say anything to the next people wearing the green and gold, young kids coming up, when you get in the microphone, when you speak, err on the side of, uh, err on the side of kindness. How about that? And if you can get here, Bring your family with you. Bring people with you because it just makes it so much more worthwhile. Oh, and, and it hit the mark because from what you said, you were vulnerable. And I think when people are vulnerable, that's, yeah, in my part of the job, if people are vulnerable, then they're trusting you and you're trusting Paddy. That, that I think that's where you get something special. Hey, just before we get off racing and training, um, my kids like to get a run on this podcast. Um, <laughs> they I, nail it too. Well, so so they keep telling me. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to put to you uh, the young bloke. 
the big penguin, um, who is testing me a little bit with his homeschooling at the moment, Kurt, but I'm doing my best. Uh, this is his question I'm going to put next to my the right microphone here. This is the big penguin and what he wants to know about you. Hopefully you can hear this. I'm going to turn it right up. If you don't, we'll play it again. Here we go. Hi, Kurt. Big penguin here. How are you going? To get stronger for surfing, I do five sets of 14 push-ups. Pretty good, hey? What weights did you used to do to get stronger for wheelchair racing? He watched a couple of videos and saw your arms and I said, I don't know if he does weights or that just comes from spinning the chair. So that's, that's what he wants to know. We've talked about aerobic here. He wants to know about strength, the big penguin. Uh, big penguin, good question, and five by 14 uh, push-ups, push nice work. Oh, I think he's inflated that a touch. I think he's added a bit of GST, <laughs> but but anyway, I'll let him go with that. <laughs> um, look, we all add a bit of GST. <laughs> yeah, of course we do. <laughs> um, uh, I never lifted a, a, a huge amount of weight strength-wise. My weights was always about uh, – well, I didn't ever want to lose days out of the saddle, so yep. it was more important for me to be in the chair than ever – uh, ever doing a session out of it, but uh, so weights were always a, a maintenance thing about trying to make sure that I could uh, I could stay in my chair for longer. So my strength, if I felt like that I was getting a bit weaker, that I needed to put on a bit more muscle, I would just put more hills in my ride, and I mm-hmm. would increase the variant or the grade of hill depending on uh, on on how much how much size that I needed to or how much power that I needed to get out because it wasn't about size as much as I just needed to become powerful. Um, and yeah, nothing would do that quite like the strength that you would get pushing yourself up a, up a steep hill because it would also give you that technical side of, of, of pushing the hill as well as the uh, strength benefit. I mentioned earlier on that, um, I don't know if there's enough adventure in the modern world and I try to get my kids involved in a bit of adventure, um, whether it's overseas, to, to challenge them. Some of the things that really hit me in your book were some of the adventures you've been on because I love a good adventure myself. I went on a surf trip once, Kurt, to a place out of Kaviang, which is the far eastern islands of Papua New Guinea. On the way back from this perfect trip where we surf perfect waves, ate perfect food, met beautiful people and had a few cold beers, we stopped and picked up people that had just finished Kokoda. And there's six of us in the back of this little plane, the happiest blokes on the planet, and we saw 10 of the most miserable yet uplifted people <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. I'm talking they were absolutely rooted. They were covered in dirt and mosquito bites. And I thought to myself, there's no way I'm ever doing that by seeing what they were. So I loved your explanation in your book of Kokoda, the first question would be why? Like how does someone think, right, I'm going to just go and crawl my way through Kokoda? Why or how? Why, firstly? Why? Um, There were lots of reasons. Um, There were lots of reasons. The first one would be if I want to do this thing, if whatever it is, if I want to do it and I think that I can do it, then why wouldn't I do it? You know, like that's just, you know, I always think of life, I want to be like, I want to be like Adam Gilchrist, right? Whatever ball that comes down to me, it's a six. If it's bold (laughs) bold with a bit of length, 
it's a four, you know, and then work my way backwards from there. Right. But, <laughs> but if I want to do it, if I think I can, I'm going to hit a six. I'm going to nail it. So I grew up crawling through hills of Kharkov, so I knew that I had some, this wasn't something that was completely out of the realms of possibility, the length of it and jungle and mud and leeches and everything else, you know, that would come later. But but also I grew up in that little town and I mentioned that, you know, like I was given, I was given challenge to experience as a kid, but I was also allowed to be vulnerable and allowed to ask for help and never feel like I was a burden, never feel like I was somebody that was, you know, something too much to uh, or, or, or dragging us back. I was always felt that if I speak, if I ask for help, then then this, that's the natural way that we exist and that we are, there's no weakness there. We are strong because we're in it together always. And and being able to look up and ask for help across the track, I knew that I would do what I could do. And if I needed a hand through whatever it may be, that I would have, I would have my family with me and my family would come with me, blokes, all of, all of them blokes. We would, uh, we would kind of, uh, we would, we would be, I guess, commit to doing it at the loss of, uh, at the loss of our family members, one of them, and it would be a kick in the bum to ensure that we would all get back together because we grew up in each other's pockets. And, and then uh, we would take 18 months to get ready for that track and all of my family members would do it with me. It was the longest, hardest family vacation that you've ever seen but it was brutal but it was uh it was one of the best experiences of my of my life well done guys day two done and dusted how'd you go good mate can you do it hey you gonna make it i don't know it's 50 50 50 50 Oh, I think I've bottomed out a little bit, boys. This is hard. Five minutes. Five more minutes. And my little one is screaming in the back room. I guess, can you hear her? I can. I don't know she, if our audience can, but the, they, I can. <laughs> the issue, homeschooling, I don't think, is going well. <laughs> <laughs> Save me from them. Is it something you need to attend to or is your wife at home as well? Look, I, just like just like I start with the, uh, I'm going to assume I'm hitting a six. I assume she's hitting a six as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're nailing it. They're right no, until until there's a knock on the door. Until right, that ball. Yeah. You tell me when the knock on the door when the knock on the door comes. Oh, I lost you. Oh no, there you go. There you go. Okay, so what was, um, what was the most demanding thing about Kikoda? What was the point where you're like, oh, gee whiz, this I've bitten off a bit here. Oh, the point, the point was flying into Kokoda from Moresby. <laughs> that, oh, when I flew, right. <laughs> that, that was when I flew over the, when I flew over the Owen Stanley Ranges and I looked down and I saw, uh, I saw exactly what we were going to do over the next 11 days. That was brutal. Um, but, you know, like a guy, uh, um, Wayne Weatherall from Kokoda Spirit, he, 
he uh, he was our guide along the trek and the local guys there, they were the most kind, generous, beautiful people that I'd ever met and uh, Wayne, Wayne, I'd called him 18 months before and he flew down to Newcastle and he because he, he went for a crawl with me and saw what I could do and he got excited about it and then I did work and he did work and we, yeah, then we flew over though and you see that reality, it is brutal, but... I had um, the local guys, they were, it's hard to describe how amazing these guys are. There was this guy that was Mac, wouldn't leave my side from day one. Day one, he wasn't my porter, crawled into a village. I saw everyone was a bit terrified of me. They'd never seen a guy, especially like a a fella just... um, requiring a wheelchair. I did bring my wheelchair with me. I was able to push into the first village because in each village it's like a a hard clay. It's a beautiful setting. And you go from this mud track into a hard clay. And I remember pushing into that first village and slowly everybody starting to come a bit closer because they were a bit scared of me. And then they'd start to laugh and talk and engage. And I remember my coach come up to me and said that there was, because he joined me as well, there was a kid with a disability in this village and he goes, this kid over there, you need to go and sit with him. And I remember looking across and seeing this little kid who over here he'd be interacting with 99% of our life on the track. He was naked, isolated underneath one of the houses and he was just crawling in the mud over there and I remember pushing over to him and him being afraid of me. And I remember thinking that I couldn't have that. Like this was the first time that I had experienced the reality, the reality that, that still is mind-boggling, that two-thirds of the, the, the world who require a wheelchair, they will, they will never see one. And two-thirds? Two-thirds, mate, two-thirds. Not, not just the, not the small part, like by far the majority will never see it. And... This was the first of dozens and dozens. Who knows how many times I've I've did it since then, but I remember thinking that this kid's scared of me. I can't have that. And I I remember getting out of my wheelchair and every time that I've seen it since, I almost automatically do it. Like if I see, if I'm in a place where that's the reality, I need to be out of my chair straight away because then you get to actually talk to the community and have a real conversations again. And uh, and I remember sitting with this kid and my family. It was one of the most emotional points of my life, like realising that, realizing that if I'm born here, it's isolation. It's not, you know, integration, inclusion. It's, it's It was rare for their kids to be taken outside. There, there was no integration. It was... A challenging life and look from that moment from that moment on the track day one Mac started to tear up who was one of our porters and he he never left my side from then on we later found out that he had a, a brother as a kid with a disability who he lost um, oh. as a young fella and he was just glued to me and I've um we were never going to stop that thing from then on. Like I just, it was never going to happen because 
We had also met with disability charities, as many as we could, people with disability organisations, and we spoke about how education and sport and things like employment will change the world of people with disabilities. And a guy in a wheelchair come up to me and said, Kurt, you don't know this. I'm not sure whether you want to know this, but people with disabilities are kept in rooms, they're isolated, they think that they shouldn't want to go, shouldn't or, or don't want to interact with the wider community and that you crawling through these villages, you're going to make me people really question that. And then, um, and then that happened on day one. And every night Mac would sit down next to me when we would get into camp and he would just tell me, if you, if you want to get home, I'll put you on my back and I'll have you in Moore's feet by sunup. And he would say that to me every day for for 10 nights. If you need to get home, you tell me now, I'll have you at the end by sunup. And um, I don't know, man, I, I don't know how it all happened. Like I just remember thinking all you can do is bury yourself every day and look up and feel comfortable in owning that help from the people next to you and you'll get there. And I, I buried myself every day. I jumped on a shoulder where I had to. And 11 days later, we made it to the other end. I was 46 kilos when I started at 56, 54 kilos. So I'd lost eight kilos, which is what, almost 18% of my body weight. I was a little bit busted. But I think that as a family unit, it is the best thing that we ever did. We will have that torturous week together for the rest of our lives. And sometimes you've got to force yourself to create those memories. More of Kurt in a moment. The last episode of the show featured five-time World Cup winner Elisa Healy, a cricketer who dominated the recent World Cup final against India at the MCG after what could be best described as a non-traditional preparation. One of the ladies at the club, her son owns a little restaurant down in the CBD there, and we went we went in there, and lo and behold, I've had three beers. And I'm <laughs> like, before. and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to leave right now. And then, as it as it happens, another one of our um, mates walked past, and she has two kids, and they're on a scooter. So here I am in the middle of Melbourne CBD at about eight pm on a kid's scooter, racing one of them down the street, and. Holy dooly. Uh, it's Holy like dooly. I didn't even know that I had a World Cup final the next day. That's Elisa Healy on episode 87 of the show. Back to Kurt. The bit that got me, and pre-kids, I'd cry once every 10 years. I don't know about you. Post-kids, I get on a plane and watch half a rom-com and I'm in tears. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know where you sit on this. Mate, but, mate. <laughs> Manchester by the sea on a flight. <laughs> I, I I openly wept and had to throw my soundproof headphones off my head. It, it, children, children have children. They have broken something inside of me because yes. it makes my eyes look. Yes, and and you did when I was watching it yesterday morning when I was having a bit of a look. Um, I think it was the Sunday night show um, on Seven with Mike Munro and all of a sudden your mum and dad appeared out of nowhere. Did, I presume you didn't know that no they idea. were going to be there? Right. No. So dad, and, dad was, dad's 
got a not the best immune system and you, you can't have anti-malaria tablets. So um, I don't think it was the wisest choice he ever made, but I think the opportunity was presented to him and he and he took it. And yeah, they snuck up behind me and and, and, and at that moment, I, I, I'll get the quote wrong, but I'll play it. Your dad said, you, you know, you said something along the lines of, what, what, what are you doing here? And I think he said, I, I came to find you or <laughs> something along those lines. But what got me emotional was the, in a 15 or 20 second clip, mate, the love that I could see you had for your parents. That's what choked me up. Yeah. Look, they, your parents, you never, ever, ever understand how much they love you till you have your own, right? Yes. Um, and I think there is the realisation that there would have been so much fear and there was guilt and every emotion under the sun when I was brought into that family and they never let me feel it. They only let me feel love. They only let me feel hope. They only built strength in me and I don't know, man. Like I just, I just, I just feel grateful for it and when they were there, I, I do. I remember turning around and th- saying something like, "Jacqueline, what are you here?" Or something like. Oh. And yeah, you, drop your first, in- you, you drop your mum's <laughs> name right on it. You didn't yeah, even go with mum. Oh, Jacqueline, <laughs> what are you doing? What? <laughs> Did you see him? <laughs> Just a second. Oh. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> I'm the proudest man on this earth at the moment. <laughs> what are you doing here? Can we find you? It's a beautiful day. Beautiful. This is one of our best days. Oh. Well done, mate. Thanks, Dad. Uh, Jacqueline, what are you doing here? <laughs> and they're crying and it was just, uh, yeah, it was it was a lovely moment, mate. It was, it was one of those moments you had to crawl 10 days or 11 days through the jungle to experience. Um... Sydney Hobart, winner. You're a winner of the Sydney Hobart. That is now, that is that is a true adventure as well. What was the hardest part of being a Sydney Hobart yachtsman? <laughs> I don't really know. Uh, look. <laughs> 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 that so you, is... are, you, went in, you went in at once and you won at once, so you're 100% strong by... You know, 180 seconds or something. It was one of those yeah. um, tack down the Derwent jobs. Yeah, mate. It was. Uh, it was. It was a hell of a. Uh, it was a hell of a run. It was. Um, look, we, we were. Um, we were a bunch of ringings. Um, we were raising money for the Loyal Foundation, for Humpty Dumpty Foundation, uh, which is putting putting hospital equipment in, uh, in 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 kids' hospitals all around the country. We were um, we were um, I was a tiny little cog in a massive machine. You ever been on one of those hundred foot yachts? Like yeah, they are once. 
they are incredible. Like they are a piece of work. Not comfortable, but a just an incredible machine. Built for speed, um, aren't they? They're built, built for speed, for not speed. comfort. Yep. No, no, no. They just carve through the waves, but they knock you around a bit. Um, the hardest part was dealing with um, well, dealing with your own and everybody else's seasickness because I'm crawling around the the deck of the boat. Like my job is in the middle of the boat, crawling around the pit, and and because we were a lot of bring-ins, because you know we. We had a few fellas that were just sick the entire time and, you know, like crawling around, crawling around and vomit in the middle of a yacht is not as much fun as what it sounds. It doesn't um, sound fun at all. <laughs> well, you know, you would you would not believe how how slippery the combination of vomit and fiberglass oh. is, mate. It's, oh. it, it's, it's slippery. Right. And... Um, Look, I just, uh, yeah, uh, but I remember that the opportunity that was given to me by the skipper, by Anthony Bell, by letting me join him on that boat, by looking at me and saying that you're the best person in the world to actually do this job that I'm going to give her. When somebody tells me that, mate, I want to do everything I can in my power to prove them right. And if I've got to crawl through vomit for 58 hours or if I've got to, you know, not sleep or whatever the job is, if you, if you are a part of that team, I know that there are people that the people in my community who are given no opportunity. They're given no quarter. They're never invited into the to to feel the dignity of risk in their life because we all need some degree of risk in our life because that's when we get to have struggles in our life. It's gets when we get to experience beauty and joy and where we figure out who we are. And I am fortunate that I get to be invited into those worlds because of the medium of sport. And if I'm invited in and if they put belief in me, I will nail it. I'll do whatever I have to to nail it because then I get to I get to own for what it is to be a, a fellow with the disability in that world. And the next skipper that sees me doing it that sees me nailing my job, next time they're sitting across the table from a bloke in a wheelchair, a girl in a wheelchair, they will see opportunity there. They will see hope there and maybe, maybe I've added, maybe I've added uh, something positive down the track that's, that's worth adding. Completely random question off your answer there. I'm going to take you somewhere where I didn't expect we get to. Have you ever thought about getting into politics? Oh, dear God, no. Right. Now, well, I think you would be a tremendous I, leader of people. I've had a few. I've had a few offers. Of, I bet you have a few phone calls. But and and the first time you get it, you go, "I would nail that thing," you know, like that. The ego gets in there, and you you just think that yeah, yeah, you could make a difference, and you could do it. But I know I'm not made for that. Like I just know I'm not made for it. I'm not made for the environment that's been created in the political arena. Uh, the the cynical approach that we have a community mm. that have adopted to every politician that walks through, I could never handle that. I could never handle every single time you go outside people questioning your actions because, well, because they've seen it over many, many years. They've seen people, they've seen people acting poorly. So... I would, uh, I, 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 you do, you do, um, you do pad the old ego when you get that call, but 
it's just I know I know myself enough that I just couldn't do it. I'd vote for you, mate. You got my vote. <laughs> vote, vote one, Kurt Fernley. Um, Rob, I've only got a couple more questions for you and I want to talk to you about your podcast. This whole discussion we've had has revolved around you facing challenges and overcoming them, whether it's winning an Olympic gold medal or going through Kokoda or going on a yacht or changing the way people view situations in life. What is life like? when you know, due to your own experiences, Kurt, that you can overcome anything you put your mind to. Is that a beautiful place to be? Is it a confronting place to be? Is it the place you are? Because it sounds like that. I know that I know that no matter what I do that I can, that I will give, uh, I would back myself that 99% of it I'll, I'll nail. You know, like if it's something that I feel passionate about, um, I'm I'm never going to be a rocket scientist. I, I would be shit ass at hurdles, but if I'm able <laughs> if I'm able to put it into a reality that I that I um, if there's if it's realistic that I can play a part in, and I'll back myself because I know that I have the ability to completely commit to it. Um, but but there are but there are failures. Um, How do you deal with failure? Well. One is I continually, I know that they're not done. Like one of the failures you know, that I failed, I, I I tried to I tried to alter the, the I tried to alter the process and procedures of uh, people with wheelchairs, their treatment when they get on and off of planes in this country, mm. and I failed. I failed with that. I thought I could, I thought I could, uh, I could approach it head on and 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 try and make try and make people experience the reality head on. But I learned that unless you actually experience it yourself, you'll never understand. So I failed there. And, and it's, it's, it's something that although I've, although I know that it's, it's been a failure that I will keep trying to find a way around that until the day that they bury me in a, in a in a gutter somewhere, hopefully a marathon gutter, many many decades from now. <laughs> um, but there are the failures, and as long as though, as long as I'm still committed to it, as long as I know that there is the potential to uh, to to continue to progress with it, then I do. Two kids, we heard one of them in the background. Um, <laughs> now they're. Now they're uh, they're readjusting. They're uh, I think they're right. going for a bike riding. But okay. yeah, we are we are dealing with the uh, the homeschooling. And Harry likes to remind us that we're not as good as his teacher daily. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of that in my house. Okay, so complete this sentence for me. Being a father is it is. Um, One of the most essential, raw moments of the human experience. It, yeah, it just, it just strips everything away in the first 60 seconds that a baby is placed into your arms and you are their everything. Pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty. It's, it's it's challenging. It has its 
good and bad, but <laughs> honestly, the the beauty in the, those the beauty in those moments make being told that uh, you're a pretty shitty teacher. <laughs> they make that okay, <laughs> you know. So well, now talking about being parents, um, you faced the question from the big penguin. Now you get the pickle. Um, who's a little bit more refined than her brother, be fair to say. Uh, she's 10. She's not adjusting that well to homeschooling, uh, especially she's in grade five and I can't do her maths, Kurt. I'm going to be completely honest with you now. <laughs> we got to a problem yesterday and I'm like, I don't know. She said, what do you mean you don't know? Anyway, uh, this is the question from the budding rocket scientist in my house. Hi, Kurt. Pickle here. Daddy thinks that he's the star of his podcast, but we both know that I am. I heard that you have a podcast called Tiny Island. What's it all about? Would you like me to come on? <laughs> I said to you, you can't go with that bit at the end. She said, yes, I can, Dad. Yes, I can. Um, Tiny Island, the podcast. We, we spoke right at the start about how good podcasts are. Um, yeah. She was fascinated by it. In fact, she started listening to it before I sat down with you. Mate, I am going to rope you into it when we get to the other side of this thing, and I'll actually bring a, I'll bring one of those fifty beers that I have over my yes. twelve months, and yes. we'll also invite Pickle in for a yarn as well. Good. But on I the other wait. side of that, face to face, you're 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 on. But look at the end of uh, at the end of racing, at the end of the Gold Coast. Um, uh, my doctor, he's been my doctor since I was a young fella. He said to me, Kurt, that you had you were you were really good at you were really good at your craft. And he goes, I, he described it to me that you've had a record that's playing and, 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 and that, that needle has been running around that record and it's created a groove that's just so deep and, 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 it's, and it's like your life is going to be in there. You need to create, a, you need to create another groove, something that's completely different to racing. And then he said, do you, 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 you either paint or, or, or get a musical instrument or just something that is completely outside of what you what you've done before and I went home and bought a microphone and a, <laughs> and a bit of podcast gear and it took me probably 6 months to to call up the first person that I did and it was Rob DeCostella I think was actually my first yarn um and you just just like okay well I'm a podcaster now but it was also like I went from that experience of racing to did a lot of speaking and a lot of advocacy and a lot of, you know, you go into fundraisers and and your life every day was about having thousands of people that you would spend you would spend seconds with and you would come and go and be gone and never actually have a conversation longer than sixty seconds. And I would, you know, since the Com Games, I was spending, you know, between three and five nights away from my home every week for two straight years until until three weeks ago when the phone called and <laughs> and uh, and we got in our current sticky bit but I feel I felt like the first time I sat down and I actually got to spend you know that 40 minutes that hour sitting down and sharing and talking and people just being so honest and I loved it. And the the reason, you know, the reason why I did it was that I spent 25 years racing for Australia, but then 
but then sometimes you sit there and you sit there and you wonder what it's all about. Like, who who are we? And I felt like I was just going to start a conversation within within that little little podcasting world about what it is to be an Aussie. Because I thought if you if we don't talk about it, then somebody will move into that space and they'll do it for personal gain. You know, like you don't want to be told by somebody who is looking for political gain what it is or isn't to be an to be an Aussie. You know, you you want all of us to kind of have that conversation, and I want to have that conversation with my kids, and that's. That's where it started. It started with sitting down with one person and going, well, what do you what do you think it is to be an Australian? But then also you want to find out what they love. And I've spoken to doctors and surgeons and teachers and musicians and actors and um, labourers and, you know, like I've, I've grabbed my, my driver the other day. I landed in, in, uh, in Brizzy and we had a 25-minute drive and I just started having a yarn. So I thought, hey, do you mind if I record this, you know? Um, and, yeah, it's, it turned into, it started as a, I wonder, and it turned into something that I just, I love. I love it. So what does it mean to you to be Australian? Multiple things. One, like, in the sporting context, I think that we have a responsibility to be fierce when we see the green and gold. We we need to be able to stay within the rules that sports set us, but we need to... I feel like you always had that responsibility because so many people have fought so hard to create the image of that green and gold that you need to you need to perpetuate that you need to continue that and for me that is our royalty like you get that opportunity you recognize it and you treat it with the the respect that it deserves and the, on the whole I think that Australia is my tiny little town of Karkor that is a community, a group of people that demand that every person in our country gets opportunity, that every single person in this place deserves to have somebody looking out for them, that we we are a little joint, you know, like big, big, vast, but we are... Uh, we don't have a lot of people over here and, and we need to make sure that we look after them. But we also need to be a light and we need to ensure that we do what we can to to show what it is to be Australian abroad, not just in the green and gold, but volunteers who are working to increase the increase the education opportunities of people with disabilities in all around the world or people who are of low income. Like we need to be that that place that countries look at and go, there's something there. there. We need to, and it's also, and it's, for me, an Australian needs to be forward thinking and be okay with changing. That we need to respect the forty thousand years that we've been in, but also be able to talk about what it is to be Australian with hundreds of people who disagree with you. 
and maybe in that conversation we will find a happy medium there that we can all go to bed and be proud of. And, yeah, man, that's that's kind of been the last two years of just mm. waking up and finding someone to have a yarn with and I've never actually sat there and really described what I think it is. So We have now. I have now, <laughs> yeah, but... That's why I, uh, what I say is, what I say it is, 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 you know, I would give equal weight to it as every other person out there. I just, I just hope that we can f- find that respectable, respectful place where we can all figure it out together. Last question. We are very fortunate on this show to have a lot of kids listen, often on the way to training with their parents, to swimming or cricket or footy or going to see their tutor because they want to be a professor, they want to win a maths prize or whatever it may be. For the young people out there that have listened to your journey and want to succeed in life, what could you tell them from your experiences? I would say that there is a there is a massive world out there. Discomfort, it will come and it will go. There are valuable lessons that you will gain out of the most uncomfortable and challenging moments in life. You will gain nothing from the easy ones. I would say that the most important thing that you have is desire. Desire is infectious. If you find something that you want that you think is valuable to you and the people around you, the rest of the community will want to play a part in it. If you find somebody who has this strong desire to create something out there and are willing to hurt to actually get there, then you, you, you feel like you want to be in that world. Like I know I want to. I want to make sure that that person has the ability to create it and... I would I would just like you just wish them well but take some time and think about what is out there what is for you an important thing that you feel strongly about and then talk to the people around you about how to get there We've reflected on a fair bit of your life over the last hour and a half or so, what's it like to, to look back and reflect on some of your proudest and some of your toughest moments? Yeah, sometimes it's you, you finish a yarn and you feel tired because <laughs> some of the moments are yeah. brutal, like some of them are brutal, but also I find it, I find it, um, it makes me, because when we sit here, like, I, I keep seeing all of these people that help me. So I keep thinking about all these people that push me in that right direction. Man, I, like, so I go back to if I reflect on my life right now, I see person after person, my coach who gave me 25 years of his life, my PE teacher who would spend six months of her life calling around to introduce me to sport. I see a primary school teacher who when my parents were told that I should be institutionalised, he, he he would walk into my mum and dad's house and tell them to ignore the Department of Education and, because I deserved to go to Kharkov Public, you know? Like he would rebel to give me opportunity and 
I, I, whenever I think about or reflect backwards, I always see all of those people and there's no gold medals there, you know, like there's no sirens when that happens. There's no fireworks. It just makes me think, well, when am I doing that? You know, <laughs> what, what am I doing? Hmm. What am I doing to, to justify each and every one of those moments today? And that's what I think. Yeah. So one of those moments are bloody powerful, right? Like, I hope that we all get to be that person that changes the world of someone. And unfortunately, you may not get a gold medal for it, but hopefully it'll make you sleep better. Um, can I just finish by saying when I started doing this podcast, you were talking about the idea of your podcast. The idea of this podcast was to try and tell uh, the story of struggle and success of athletes to inspire and motivate people to listen and to deliver a really positive message. I can't think of a episode that has done that more than chatting with you today. So, mate, I really appreciate it. You are the poster boy in my mind for what this podcast aims to be. Sometimes we get there, sometimes we don't. But, mate, thanks for coming on the Howie Games. Um, thanks for being technically pretty good when pushed back to shove. And thanks for being let's just, really honest. Let's just wait and see yeah, how true. the audio comes that's out. True. If anyone ever hears that, mate, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having a chat. No problems, Howie. Quite a story, that one. Quite a story. Imagine, just imagine for a moment how powerful it would be to go through life knowing, due to previous experience, you could achieve anything you set your mind to. I guess that option is there for all of us. What a life Kurt has lived to date. Thank you so much to Kurt for telling his story in such a beautiful, eloquent manner. The man absolutely exudes passion. How good. Old hot dog boy Darcy Thompson assured me... If you're listening to that part, that it was a salad roll he's having. I'm not having it. I'm not having it. It was a big, dirty dog with sauce and mustard, I reckon, that he was wolfing without him. These remote shows just aren't happening, so thanks, mate. Thanks to you all for listening. Keep pushing forward as best you can, and keep an eye out for our next episode dropping soon with Ian Smith. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener